Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, <clears throat> we're going to look at the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 44. It is the incident in the New Testament that we refer to as the visitation, when Mary, who has already been involved in the Annunciation and is there already has already conceived um, Jesus and, and is carrying him in her womb, takes off and goes to Jerusalem to visit her elderly cousin, her elderly relative Elizabeth, who is the wife of Zechariah, and um, who also is miraculously with child. Remember the story that the angel told Zechariah that would happen, and he doubted it and so was struck dumb and was unable to speak. And, uh, and meanwhile, Elizabeth, it says, was in her sixth month. And, uh, and so Elizabeth is pretty far along in the pregnancy, and Mary comes from Galilee. Not, not an insignificant feat, for a young woman who herself is pregnant. It's probably about a 100-mile walk. And um, whether there was, was... She obviously, in those days, probably did not go by herself, but there's no indication of who accompanied her. Um, <clears throat> whether it was Joseph or whether it was other relatives or who knows. And no indication as to whether she traveled by some kind of beast of burden or whether she did it all on foot herself. But at any rate, it's a few days' journey. Um, normally, to walk 100 miles would yeah, be five days anyway, if not more, depending on the frequency of stops and the, um, and the pace and so forth. So it's pretty significant. Just the logistics of the whole thing are pretty significant. And it's also pretty significant what happens when Mary arrives because this is the crooks of the whole story. It's to, uh, it's eventually, it ends in the Magnificat, but not in our gospel today. And so the gospel says, Mary set out and went as quickly as she could to a town in the hill country of Judah. And she went into Zacharias's house and greeted Elizabeth. Now as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So who is the child in the womb of Elizabeth? Obviously, it is John the Baptist. The leaping in the womb, movement in the womb at six months is not, is not unheard of at all. At the same time, they emphasize the kind of movement, that there was kind of a, an, a spontaneous and, and a dramatic movement of the child in the womb as soon as the Lord Jesus entered the room in his mother's womb. And Elizabeth gave a loud cry and said, of all women, you are the most blessed, and blessed be the fruit of your womb. Why should I be honored with a visit from the mother of my Lord? Amazing that Elizabeth recognizes immediately that within Mary is coming is someone who, whatever the word actually means in this kind of a context, is, is, coming, um, is the coming of her Lord. And the Baptist's response to that coming of the Lord is the same. It is leaping for joy. And, um, <clears throat> and so there's a surprise, there's a shock in Elizabeth. She cries out in, in, a, in a loud, she gave a loud cry and said, Of all women, 
you are the most blessed of all women. What, why are you here? Um, and why am I honored with a visit from the mother of my Lord? For the movement your greeting, moment your greeting reached my eyes, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Yes, blessed is she who believed that the promise made her by the Lord should be fulfilled. And, and this, I, I think this is such a powerful and, and such a dramatic piece of the gospel according to St. Luke that, uh, that Elizabeth and John the Baptist both have similar and spontaneous reactions to the coming of Mary and Jesus. And that in that spontaneous action in the, of the coming of Mary and Jesus, they both express joy and shock and appreciation. And both are aware of the fact that something strange has taken place, that Mary is one of those, while Elizabeth carries on the tradition of the older women in the Old Testament, particularly Samuel's mother, um, who, who become, and, and Sarah, for heaven's sakes, too, Abraham's wife, who, who, becomes, who becomes pregnant in their old age as a sign of God's favor, as a sign of God marking out their child for a particular destiny, for a particular role. And in most cases, that role that he assigns them is the role as, as a great prophetic role. And, um, <clears throat> and certainly Samuel became one of the great prophets. Um, and John the Baptist becomes, as Jesus says, the greatest of all men born of women. He is, the, he is the last of the great prophets. And he is the one not only to prophesy the coming of the Messiah, but to identify him, to lay eyes on him, and to identify the, last, the, the Messiah when he does come. So he has the opportunity to see the Messiah in person and, uh, and actually baptizes him in the Jordan River and so forth. So that John the Baptist is incredibly a special prophet, one who brings to a conclusion the the whole the whole old covenant, and in joy and enthusiasm, passes it over to the new covenant, and this is the role that Mary and Elizabeth tend to play in this in this drama. Elizabeth tends to play the role of the Ark of the Old Covenant that she is the one who contains within herself the fulfillment of prophecy, and that she contains that fulfillment of prophecy within herself in the person of the final prophet, in the person of John the Baptist, her son. And, <clears throat> and when she encounters Mary, she, she acknowledges Mary as the bearer of the new covenant, as the one who carries within her the Lord. And she says about Mary... Blessed is she who believed that the promise made her by the Lord would be fulfilled. That this belief that the promise will be fulfilled, this is the moment of the recognition of the fulfillment of the prophecies, of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the promises of the Old Covenant. So what we have is a dramatic encounter between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between that which contains the fullness of the prophecies of old and that which opens the door to the whole new covenant that will be presided over by Jesus Christ and sealed in his blood. So that what we have then is an example, I think, and I hope I don't uh, overstep my bounds on this, but, but the, the example, very honestly, 
of a proper relationship between the old covenant and the new. It is one of peace and one of joy. It is one of appreciation and care and concern and understanding. And it is, it is one that, when it is properly ordered, is the occasion, is a joyous occasion. Um, <clears throat> we have not always found it so, and uh, we certainly have found anti-Semitism within the Christian West um, throughout the centuries. Um, I think there's some irresponsible historians, James Carroll being one of them, who, who would like to pin the whole idea of anti-Semitism on the Catholic Church. Um, I think the stories are very different than that, and it goes back a long ways. It goes back into the early days of, um, of when the Christians were being exposed, expelled from the synagogues um, in the Middle East and therefore exposed to the full force of the Roman law. Part of the reason for the persecutions of the Christians in the early days was that they no longer had the umbrella of the synagogue um, to protect them. And uh, the result of it, the result of it was, of course, that they were exposed to the contempt and the, and the hatred of, of the Roman Empire. And while the Jews themselves were to experience their own denouement, their own kind of um, tragic end of, uh, of the kingdom of Israel in 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, um, nevertheless, it was in 64 AD that Nero burned the Christian sections of Rome in order to do a urban planning, in order to clear it away for his building of his Circus Maximus at, uh, at the same time, of course, not evacuating the people before he burned them. And we certainly can say that this is, in a sense, oriented toward the Christians and was a very formal persecution of the Christians. Even Tacitus, in, um, even Tacitus acknowledges that. And while Tacitus himself has no res respect for the Christians and no love for the Christians, he said that, what, nevertheless, he criticized severely what Nero did to them. Um, Tacitus' objection to the Christians was he thought they were cannibals because of the way in which they spoke about the Eucharist. And uh, so in a very unsophisticated way, Tacitus rejected them as haters of humanity. Um, and again, it was because of the Eucharist, which he did not grasp or understand what they were saying, but he, uh, he did hear that they ate the flesh and drank the blood of the Son of Man. And, uh, and so for them, for him, they were simply a primitive cult um, who had not yet been civilized by the Romans. The, uh, and that there was no lamenting their destruction, except that it was an evil act to do that to, to any human beings. So that, that, kind of, uh, that, that kind of weaving in and out of, of the relationship between the covenants um, gives us a sense and an idea that this idyllic picture that we get in the story of the visitation is not an idyllic picture, is not in reality idyllic when it comes to be, that there is long conflict between the synagogue and the church. Now, one of the things of the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as many have seen that, is the liberation of the church, when no longer could it be considered simply a, a sect of, uh, of Middle Eastern Judaism. Um, but with that, of course, also came the consequences of its liberty and its freedom. 
and that was an exposure to the Roman law and the Roman laws concerning books and concerning worship and concerning sacred foods and all of those kinds of things. But that's down the road. And the very initial, and the very initial encounter between the Old and the New Covenant, we find joy and we find peace and we find um, surprise and an appreciation. And when Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who believed that the promise made her by the Lord would be fulfilled, my word, think about all of this. Blessed are we, obviously, if we believe that the Lord's promise to us will be fulfilled. Blessed are we if we believe in the second coming of Jesus. Blessed are we if we believe he died for our sins. Blessed are we if we feel that he gives us grace and and urges us to cooperate with his saving acts, not only in our own lives, but in the world. Blessed are we who have believed all the promises that he would leave the residue with us of his body and his blood, that we may be joined together with him throughout our lifetimes and throughout the ages, and in so doing be incorporated into the fulfillment and the realization of the promise of eternal life. So that sin, the blessed is she, <clears throat> can certainly be then applied to the church. Blessed are we if we believe that what the Lord has promised us would be fulfilled. It has not yet been fulfilled in us, um, except for the fact that the Lord is present within us. And in that is the fulfillment of everything. Um, certainly, the, when we receive the Eucharist, we receive the body and the blood of the Lord inside of ourselves. And, uh, and receiving them inside of ourselves, we receive the fulfillment of the promise. We receive the kingdom of God. We receive that union with Jesus Christ, which brings us to salvation. We accept all of that when we accept the Eucharist. And uh, the fact is, uh, you know, statistics are statistics. And, and, um, and it's, you know, we have to take them seriously. When, when in fact, the, the polls are saying that only 41% of the Catholics believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, that's kind of alarming. Um, at the same time, you don't know how the questions were posed, and you don't know what they're asking people either. And that becomes kind of problematic also for us. If that's true then that means that, you know, that there's 59% of, of Roman Catholics who, don't, who no longer believe what was promised by the Lord would be fulfilled and are not therefore included in this blessing that comes from Elizabeth, the one who carries the Ark of the Old, the one who is the Ark of the Old Covenant, the one who carries John the Baptist into the, into the drama of the history of our redemption. And so then what does that tell us about our witness? What does that tell us about our faith? What does that tell us about how we teach, how we catechize, how we preach, how we evangelize, everything? If we're not doing it, and the fact that, you know, that um, as Elizabeth of the Trinity says, when we receive the Eucharist, we receive the the promise. We receive the the kingdom of God. We receive the kingdom of God. Of, uh, that has been promised to us because that actually is what, is what the promise is that we will be one in Christ with Christ for all eternity in the presence of the Father and the Spirit and that, that being part of the Lord is very much a part of the fulfillment of our promise 
For if we live in him, then we share with him also his destiny. And if we are living with him, then we share with him that eternal presence to the Father. And that, <clears throat> however we want to interpret it, however we want to dream about it or think about it in our minds, in our imaginations, that really is the fulfillment of the promise. That's heaven. And uh, what our relationship with others who have been before us will be, we're not sure. We have different ideas about that. Um, St. Thomas, I think I've said before, doesn't seem to believe that we'll be able to have an influ influence on earth. Uh, once we are with the Lord completely, once the promise has been totally fulfilled, and yet at the same time, Therese of Lisieux says, I will spend my heaven in doing good upon earth. So, you know, everybody, even the saints, have their own opinion of what's going to, what it's going to be like to be one with Jesus Christ. But we might want to say that Jesus Christ still involves himself in the, in the uh, activities of our world, and still involving himself in activities of the world, if we are part of him, it seems reasonable that we too can be in some way, shape, or form um, active in, in the activities of our world. Certainly it's something that we all like to hope for. We like to hope that those that we have known, those whom we have loved, um, are concerned about us still and will do what they can to assist us. And we also pray for the intercession of the saints and believing that the saints themselves, who we know are already there, for the Lord has proven that to us, um, demonstrated that to us, um, that they also look after us and they also are concerned about our well-being and the fruitfulness of our journey. For the journeys are long sometimes, and when they're long, they're also tiring. And when they're tiring, they have a real... Uh, they have a real... Um, impact on our stamina, on our morale, and so forth, and saying, you know, how long, oh Lord, how long? And we never get an answer until we do. And, uh, and that's, part of the, that's part of the fidelity of waiting. That's part of the fidelity of, of, uh, of, being, of being there. So when we get then to the story of the, uh, of the uh, visitation, we, we, have, we have an important piece of, of the story of the church, not only scripturally, not only in the relationship between the prophets and the new covenant, but we get a sense of the relationship of the church um, throughout the ages in relationship to our brothers and sisters who were of the first covenant. And uh, while well, we've made a, a, lot of, a lot of progress in how we deal with all of that, um, <clears throat> nevertheless, it will never be for us more perfectly clarified than that which is as it should be comes forth to us from the pages of Luke's Gospel that she was filled with the Holy Spirit and she gave a loud cry and said of all women you are the most blessed and blessed is the fruit of your womb why should I be honored with a visit from the mother of my Lord and uh, she acknowledges then Jesus as Lord and acknowledges Mary as the ark which, covers, which carries Jesus as Lord, which is therefore the ark of the new covenant. For she said, the moment your greeting reached my ears, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Elizabeth interprets the joy in John the Baptist who leaps as soon as Christ enters into his world and enters into a realm of his house actually. 
For it says, Mary went into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. The other thing that we we wonder about, and the and the other thing that becomes, how how did the news travel that Elizabeth was pregnant, and how did Mary, a hundred miles away in Nazareth, fig, figure out, and how did she know Elizabeth actually even, and the chances are we're going to see this in next Sunday's gospel, but the chances are that families gathered, extended families gathered at Passover, and that that's how the people from the rural areas got to know their more urban relatives, um, was gathering at family gatherings, especially at Passover. They were supposed to take three journeys to Jerusalem in the course of a year, but people far away were exempted. However, most of them made a significant effort, if possible, to come to Jerusalem for Passover. And uh, and so we'll see in next Sunday's gospel that uh, that Jesus is so familiar with the clan idea that he felt quite free to uh, go off on his own and uh, without his parents' supervision, and um, <clears throat> and is therefore to you know teach his mother a great lesson and Joseph a great lesson as well next time. But right now, we can presume they knew each other probably through the Passover gatherings, and that somehow or other, um, Elizabeth, Mary knew that Elizabeth was with child because the angel told her that. Um, now, how did Elizabeth know, or did she know, or did she hear of the strange events that went on in Nazareth? Um, or in, 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 no one knows that. But it's also an interesting piece, something to reflect upon, because this particular gospel eventually goes into the Magnificat, and the Magnificat, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, or my soul magnifies the Lord. We, we have the, the Blessed Mother saying that in almost all the texts. Some texts will put that in the mouth of Elizabeth. But it basically is a combination of, uh, of I have a, a list here of wh- where you, you get all this from, from First Samuel, from Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, um, Samuel, uh, and they're, they're all they're all pieces of the of the heritage of Israel from the days from the prophetic days and from the days of the Psalms of King David. They are in fact part of the prayer and part of the proclamation of Israel, and that when Luke puts that into the mouth of the Blessed Mother. Basically, he ties once again a very tight knot between the Old Testament and the New, between the Ark of the Old Covenant now before us and the Ark of the New Covenant now before us. And, uh, and so basically then, as the, the family life of, uh, of the, the Hebrew people kind of exposes itself through this business of the, of the visitation, and uh, and also eventually in the finding of the child Jesus in the temple, what we began to realize is that the world is there is a fairly small world, and one in which all sorts of people know all sorts of things. I I, I think you know that um, certainly it's notorious that in small towns people know more about each other than they do in larger cities, and sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not helpful but that here in a small place where life itself kind of exudes from the, from the temple, 
that the news of things going on with those affiliated with the temple spreads easily throughout Palestine and allows each person then to know something of what is going on in the life of other persons. These strange events of Nazareth may well have been known in the temple community of Jerusalem, especially at the gathering of the clans. And, uh, and certainly they also are, are well known in, in, uh, in the broader countryside um, as a result of the coming together at the High Holy Days, especially at Passover. So that Elizabeth and Mary, knowing something about each other, having met something about it, having met each other most, uh, most assuredly over the years in family gatherings in Jerusalem, that uh, are highly sensitized to the stories that they have heard. And the story of Zachariah as, and his wife was certainly one of a dramatic story from the temple. Um, where the priest who had been struck dead because he would not believe that his wife could conceive in her old age now is, finds her to be with child. And uh, as in finding her to be with child, he realizes that there is some kind of a prophetic fulfillment taking place in the story of he and his wife. And while we don't encounter Zechariah uh, again, we do encounter him at the bedside of, of Elizabeth when John the Baptist is born and, uh, and being challenged as to the name of a child. And so what we have then is a very human drama, a drama of a people who are immersed in their faith. This is really kind of what's interesting. They are deeply immersed in the faith of, of, that they hold to where both Zechariah acknowledges the miracle, um, Elizabeth acknowledges the coming of the Lord, the Baptist acknowledges the coming of the Messiah he is to announce and begins to announce him already in the womb, and that together they are amazed and in wonder and awe at all that the Lord has done for them. Maybe along with our idea of the proper relationship between the covenants and the beginning of the new covenant and the peaceful ending of the old, that maybe, maybe what we might want to be able to do is to reflect in our own lives about the impact of this event on my life and your life. This is not surrounded with all sorts of bells and whistles. This is an everyday event, and so is our faith. It is dramatic, it is beautiful, but it is everyday. And it isn't only when we ring all the bells and turn on all the lights. It's all the time. And that's what we see here. And a simple foundation, a simple basis. Blessed is she who believed that the promise made her by the Lord would be fulfilled. Maybe that's our prayer. Make us blessed also and help us to believe that the promise made to us by the Lord will be fulfilled. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.